This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host, and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, I speak with Jackie Forrest and Kevin Krauser in a conversation about how the oil and gas industry can lead into the energy future, even at this moment during the pandemic. To learn more about our webinars, podcasts, and work at Adam and Team, visit us at energythinks.com. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Jackie and Kevin. We're all watching to see what disruptions from isolation and social distancing will last. Um, I'm particularly interested about how these uh, will change the energy system. Uh, and we know that commuting may be different, traveling may be different, the way we consume energy services. With an eye to the oil and gas industry and what, what, is, um, what changes might happen, Jackie, what, what things are you keeping an eye on right now and, and ways that they may affect the oil and gas industry of the future? Well, there's so many things, and I think we'll talk about demand in a little bit. Obviously, demand's fallen completely off a cliff, uh, down uh, 30%, but starting to rebound. We'll talk about that. But I think the thing that people aren't thinking about enough is the strategic implications of supply, uh, not just right now, but longer term. So especially the United States, which has grown to be the world's largest oil producer, is going to be badly hurt by COVID. Uh, most expectations are in the next year and a half, Instead of producing 13 million barrels a day of crude oil, the U.S. could be producing nine, tens. There's even some estimates, eight million barrels a day. Well, what does that gap really mean? Uh, who's going to fill in that void? It's not probably going to be American producers in the in the foreseeable future because you know once they get their production down uh, because there's a lack of capital, whether it be debt or equity, another even if prices recover closer to what we've seen over the last five years, closer to 50 bucks, they're not going to have enough cash flow. To grow again, especially considering that money will have to go to uh, probably to banks and debt um, payments, as well as uh, reinstating those dividends. So, you know, I think we have to think about what are the strategic implications. It's been a long time since we've talked about energy security. It's really when we had discussions around oil in North America, it is really recently focused on greenhouse gas emissions exclusively. Uh, but I think energy security is going to come back into the mix. Uh, if you think about some of the policies that the Trump administration has pursued, like sanctions on Iran and Venezuela and Russia, are they really going to be emboldened to do that when they're relying on these countries for three, four million barrels a day of crude oil? Uh, what policy could the U.S. put in place to uh, reinstate growth again or, or reduce their dependence on foreign oil? There's some really big energy security implications and green agenda implications of, of a change this big. Mm, really interesting. Kevin, you've been thinking about uh, and talking about disruption for a long time, particularly as it affects the oil field services industry and drilling. What are you watching now and, and what do you see disruption leading to for your business and for the industry as a whole? Yeah, I think, I think Jackie makes some, some great points around kind of energy security and, and does North American oil production, you know, bounce back in the, in the near term or even the medium term to what it was before, you know, considering, uh, you know, the debt and equity challenges that are going to be prevalent in 
um, you know, the upstream market uh, in, in the U.S. and Canada for oil producers. You know, one of the, the big things I think I'm watching is, is what actually happens to the associated gas. Um, you know, much of the U.S. Uh, natural gas production sort of was, you know, associated from light tight oil uh, plays. And, you know, gas demand is, is still growing uh, and hasn't taken uh, the shock that, that oil demand has uh, and is really a fuel of the future. So where, where does that gas come from, I think is, is one of the big uh, areas of opportunity that I think exists for, you know, oil field service companies uh, across North America is, is something I'm keeping a close eye on. You know, for sure, you know, I think that, um, you know, disruption is um, a, a big and driving force in our industry. And, and the question I always ask myself and, and my team is, um, you know, do you want to be disrupted or would you rather disrupt? And so, you know, I think there's, there's, there's not just technological disruptions that, you know, uh, present some opportunities, um, but there's also, you know, business strategy um, disruptions, I think that, that, that can bring some opportunities too. So, you know, in particular, in terms of, you know, beyond sort of the, the mainstay of, of natural gas and LNG production, I think that there's, there is a big opportunity in, in the hydrogen space. Um, I've been, you know, dabbling into that. Um, you know, some of the, the metrics and, that I've been seeing is basically blue hydrogen that can be produced from natural gas um, with a carbon capture sequestration component into it. So essentially green carbon. The pricing models I'm seeing for Canada uh, are some of the lowest hydrogen produ production in the world. Um, you know, the hydrogen economy is coming. Uh, Nikola Motors, uh, which is, uh, makes big hydrogen trucks, are, you know, uh, making some big progress on, on long-haul transport. Um, and I think hydrogen presents a big opportunity for oil and gas to be decarbonizing some of the heavy industries that, that are, are really difficult to decarbonize otherwise. Um, you know, likewise, geothermal. Um, I think there's been some big advancements in, in a variety of technologies from, from, some, from some, some Canadian companies, some German companies um, that are working, uh, um, um, working on, on some interesting stuff and, and it, it puts rigs to work. Uh, it puts oil and gas rigs to work in the exact same capacity as they're, they're working for now. Um, and so I've been pleased to be working with the Canadian Drilling Association, the CAODC, uh, some green energy groups and some geothermal players to articulate what that future could look like and we're proud of that, uh, that progress. Um, and, uh, and carbon capture and sequestration, I think, is, is another big area. But, you know, if I'd be looking at, you know, opportunities for the oil and gas industry to um, not just be disrupted, but actually disrupt back, um, that's the ways I'd be thinking about it. You know, where does this, where does this natural gas come from and how do we ensure that we do it? Um, and then, you know, hydrogen and geothermal and CCS, I think, are, are some big opportunities in, in the medium term. <clears throat> That's great. I'm going to ret return to those. Oh, yeah, please do, Jackie. T t tell us about your view of um, both um, natural gas demand as well as what's on your mind. Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, I totally agree with Kevin. Uh, there's some, you know, red lights all over the oil market, but there are some green shoots uh, here for natural gas for sure. Uh, today, about 40% of all the production of gas in the U.S. is coming from these tight oil plays. We're already seeing, if we look at the major tidal plays in the U.S., about three BCF per day of drop, of drop supply. That's going to get much bigger as we head into the next few years. And it's kind of interesting, you know, consumers have really, of natural gas in North America and in Canada, have really benefited the last few years by very, very low prices. In fact, unsustainably low prices because uh, the natural gas producers have been beat up. Uh, prices have been so low that they have acquired a lot of debt 
And they're actually generally pretty unhealthy companies in general, especially in Canada, where we had sometimes 70% discounts compared to Americans. So it was really hard in Canada. So now we're in a situation where we need those same companies that have been battered by low prices for two years to just start drilling. Like we need drilling rates potentially to double uh, in 2021 in order to keep the market balanced. And, you know, the old philosophy is, oh, well, these guys are going to come out and start drilling for a 10% rate of return on half cycle economics. Uh, you know, therefore, the price is going to stay low. I don't know if that's going to be the case. That's the big question. What does price have to be so that these companies, which are generally unhealthy, and a lot of people have calls on their cash, uh, start putting money back into capital again. And so I think consumers are going to be paying for the very low prices they've enjoyed the last few years. And I do agree, Kevin, that's probably where the growth will be for drilling. And I totally agree that we've got to diversify as well. In fact, what is a hydrogen? It's basically decarbonizing natural gas. It's a new market, a zero carbon market. And Canada, um, well, in Alberta, we just launched a task force to study how we're going to have a hydrogen economy. The report's going to come out in July. I'm really excited about it. We have all the things you need to be successful, cheap gas, abundant gas. We have the world's largest CO2 pipeline. We have a large industrial uh, user base in, in an area around Edmonton where the municipalities are very supportive of it. And uh, we can, I think, really leapfrog other jurisdictions um, if, if we play our cards right. Yeah, for sure. And, and so maybe just build on that because I think like hydrogen, I think, has been kind of around for a long time. But understanding, I think, you know, where the opportunity exists, you know, there's there's two opportunities. One, you basically can drill for hydrogen. Um, you know, if you do a, an oil flood of an existing oil reservoir, hydrogen can rise to the surface of it and you can just drill down and, and, and pop the top off it. But there's also, you know, existing technologies with steam methane uh, re reformation that um, basically can kind of create it. Um, and then you, we can do this dirt, dirt cheap. And, um, you know, the price of hydrogen certainly is much higher than natural gas, but you can mix hydrogen up to about 25% into a natural gas pipeline uh, and then put it into a furnace. And, you know, the long haul transport uh, aspects as well as the petrochemical aspects of it. You know, I think it's, a, it's an un... It's, 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 a, it's a commodity to watch and, you know, Shell and I believe BP at Jackie Wido have already installed uh, hydrogen fueling stations in, in Europe where you can fill up a, a truck or, or a car. Um, you know, I think that's one of, a, one of the in exciting ways to kind of be thinking about um, how natural gas and hydrogen are, are related. This is so great. And I want to return to hydrogen again. Um, before we do so, though, I want to pick up on a point that you made, Jackie, that maybe implied that oil demand will not recover. Um, and I wanted to just check in on that. We have heard both. We've heard this is the end of oil. We've heard it uh, broadly across North America for those who it is in their interest, but also those who it is not in their interest. So I'm curious if um, oil demand, if you don't see oil demand recovery, so we're really talking about the future of natural gas in terms of new, new activity. Well, actually, uh, my point was that a lot of people are focused on demand right now, but I actually see that returning more certain. Uh, I think what we need to focus on actually when we think out a year is the supply side and, and what that's the implications of that. So demand for sure fell off a cliff. Uh, we've never seen anything like this uh, in the modern times. So, like if you go back to the financial crisis, if you go back to like 1986, you know, over a series of years, we lost in the range of three, four million barrels a day annually. We're talking about losing 10 million barrels a day annually this year. Uh, and also those changes were very slow. They didn't happen in the period of like 
uh, two, three weeks, you know, where the world shut down and half of the world's population was locked down. So, uh, but, you know, the good news is there are some real um, early signs here that demand is going to pop back a lot faster than people think. If you go look at tra vehicle traffic in, in major Chinese cities, it's back even higher than what it was uh, prior to uh, the pandemic. So people are taking to their cars even more. In fact, we could see a rebound in gasoline demand that it could overshoot where we were before. If you look at the China data, you've got uh, refinery runs in China that are, are higher than what they were before. Europe, it looks like their congestion data is very close to what it was same time last year. Now the US is slow. If you look at the major cities right now, they really remain very low. But yet gasoline demand in the US, you know, it fell from 9.5 million barrels a day to five, and it's already bounced back 50%, around 7 million barrels a day. And that's really before congestion data started coming back. So I don't know where people are driving to. They're not driving to the downtowns of the major cities, but they seem to be driving around. For sure, jet fuel will remain low, but you know, it, it is a relatively small amount of all oil demand. So the only caution I have is I have no doubt people have not changed that much. I think people have a need to move and will move. I think demand will come back. Uh, the only caution obviously is a second wave of infections. Is it possible? You know, will that delay that rebound? Nobody can really predict that. Uh, and, um, you know, how fast these treatments will come. And, you know, we, I was just looking at the pictures of the Memorial Day long weekend in the U.S. Go, uh, go Google uh, Ozark pool party. And, uh, you know, I don't know that that represents what's going on in the U.S. But if we do see infections come back, uh, that would, would slow things down. But I ultimately think demand will come back at some point. Really interesting. So um, I, I'm going to uh, pivot with an unpredicted question for you, Kevin, which is uh, both you and Jackie have mentioned a lot of really interesting uh, studies and demonstration projects, CO2 pipeline, CCS, uh, blue hydrogen. Are these, are these aspects of a future decarbonizing energy system, do they help transcend some of the opposition to oil and gas? in Canada, or is this really something that we'll have to forge on our own uh, as an industry uh, without the support of those who prioritize cl climate or maybe are opposed to oil and gas? So I'm curious if these are, uh, are, are these efforts that bring people together, or is this an area we're going to have to really be brave and lead on our own? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a, it's a loaded question, obviously. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that um, you know, the economic challenges as well as the societal challenges that are coming out of this are, are encouraging people to work together in, in new ways. You know, I've, um, you know, through, uh, you know, my, my, my role on some of the boards I'm, I'm on as well as some of the energy advocacy work that I do, um, you know, I've really been taking the narrative since uh, COVID that, you know, oil and gas is part of the solution to climate change. That, in fact, we, we really realistically probably can't meet any of the, you know, uh, global, global target commitments without oil and gas at the table. Um, and this narrative actually has been really kind of well responded to by um, to bear some of the most senior leaders in, in oil and gas who have uh, reached out to me, you know, really encouraging the work that, that, I'm, uh, that I'm doing, especially on the advocacy front. Um, and, and likewise on the, the green energy fronts, you know, probably the most influential green energy lobbyist in, in Canada, um, who I don't think anybody ever thought uh, I would be able to get on, on side with putting rigs to work, but she signed an alliance agreement to, to put drilling rigs to work alongside the petroleum 
uh, industry um, uh, to put drilling rigs to work on, on geothermal. Um, and we do our, our weekly meetings. So I think there is a real space in the middle um, that is going to be important that people are going to be able to kind of navigate kind of into that, you know, it's really easy to sort of sit on the sidelines and, you know, chastise the, the other side of whatever side of the debate you're on. Um, but the real solutions actually do exist in the middle and and um, I think there's there's an opportunity for us to to kind of transcend some of the battles of the past because the challenges of how we rebuild um, is going to be a massive one and uh, it's it's time to put the battles of the past behind us. Yeah, Kevin, I would just add to that, you know, the, the narrative in Canada and especially I think it was peaked during our last election, our federal election which was, remind me, I don't know if that was a year and a half ago or something like that, a year ago, uh, is that uh, the only way for Canada to meet its climate goals is to shut down the oil industry. And there were federal politicians speaking like that. Uh, and uh, it was really a negative situation where, you know, it was in most people's minds that to have an oil and gas industry would make it impossible for us to uh, achieve our Paris goals. And for a lot of people in the country that are not benefiting from the oil industry, it's like, well, just get rid of it then. Uh, I think that narrative has changed. Why? Because the industry has changed. You know, many, since that time, I, I can put a list that represents something like 60% of the production of Western Canada has committed to some sort of aggressive greenhouse gas emission reduction goal, whether it be to meet the Paris target type thing or a net zero uh, target. Uh, and, you know, our federal government uh, that did get reelected as a minority government has also pledged a net zero. So, you know, I think the narrative is changing to, you know what, the oil and gas industry is going to contribute to Canada meeting that goal. In fact, we're going to contribute in a bigger way than any other sector in Canada to making you meet that goal. And I think it's changing the engagement with the federal government. I think it's engaged, changing the narrative with Canadians. And it's so critically important, but it was really a change in the industry's attitude uh, more than anything. Yeah, and I think there has been a, a big change in the industry's attitude, even within the last kind of six months, um, which I think is getting some progress. But, you know, one of the more recent announcements, there was a major announcement on methane reductions uh, by our federal government. And, you know, the, the, the GHG reduction of this is supposedly about seven seven and a half percent of Canada's uh, GHG. Um, there's some low-lying fruits here that we can actually work on together. Um, and coming to the table in that way, I think, is going to be... Um, helpful in the sense that, you know, the stuff the green movement is working on, that's 10, 15, 20 years out. You know, we've got techniques and solutions inside the oil and gas industry, like methane reductions, um, that we can do dramatic and immediate uh, steps on, on GHG mm -hmm. reductions. And so let's, let's, let's go and let's go and do that. And let's, you know, stop. Let's see what the near term steps are. And let's see what the long term steps are. And, and let's, let's work to, together. Really interesting. A reminder to our audience, you're welcome to submit your questions on the Q&A. Um, Jackie, I'm interested, you have direct line of sight to how investors are thinking about these things. And so we talked a little bit about how some of the, the narrative initiated by the oil and gas industry to, to join shared ambitions around greenhouse gas emission reductions. Um, where are investors sitting on this? Do they want oil and gas company to continue business as usual? Are you seeing among investors that, that you all talk to and work with that they, that they want to see industry pivot in a, in a really meaningful way? What, what does that look like? Well, for sure, you know, investors are part of why uh, the industry changed its attitude. Uh, I think the results of the federal election were also an eye-opener to Canadians, to Canadian producers, because like, okay, majority Canadians see this. 
Uh, but hey, at the same time, uh, if we want to have any hope of raising capital, which is pretty difficult, uh, most of the major institutional investors are moving this way too. So it's like we, we really have to kind of wake up and recognize this is the way the world's going. And, uh, you know, right now, the oil industry is really out of fashion. It was even before COVID. Uh, it was very difficult to raise equity, very difficult to raise even additional debt. Uh, and I don't think that's going to get any easier. Companies are going to have to uh, get through this very difficult period. The ones that come out of this will probably come out even lower cost, uh, leaner, meaner, potentially greener. And they're going to have to show they're profitable. They're going to have to show they can return money to shareholders. They're sustainable. But that's not going to be enough. They're going to have to show that they're part of the energy future and uh, they are contributing in a positive way to meeting uh, reduction greenhouse gas emissions. And I think other aspects of ESG are going to start to uh, also be more important. Right now, it really is a focus on GHG, but I think water use. I think uh, social community uh, stuff is going to start to matter more for some of these institutional investors. So you got to really do it all. And yeah, ESG initiatives may be on pause right now because there's not, absolutely no money. Uh, but as soon as money comes back, I think they're going to be a priority. Kevin, you want to add anything about the investor perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're private. So we've, um, um, and, you know, longstanding shareholders. Um, and so we're definitely not playing in this institutional equity space that, that Jackie's um, an, an expert on. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, from, from our kind of smaller private capital investment space, you know, the, you know, obviously the metrics are, are, are key and, and obviously with drilling activity, what it is in, in North America right now and, and probably for the remainder of, of the year, um, you know, the, the question is, is going to be asked is, is what does the, what does the vision look like kind of going forward, right? And, and how do you create, you know, reliable business lines that can generate the returns and the metrics that you actually need? Um, and those, I think, are going to be where the market is going. Um, and, and I think that this is, in a lot of regards, uh, you know, kind of where, where the market is, is going. Good. And I just want to put a point on this because we'll return to this in the series um, in the months ahead. But Jackie, I too am observing that while uh, there will be a return to environmental and climate, we can expect the S and the G as well. There's certainly momentum building yeah. around a, a, a more comprehensive expectation of the oil and gas industry that really uh, they've been largely immune, immune from so far. So um, we have one question from the audience that I get every time I speak in Canada. So now you two can tell me how to answer it, which is um, in Canada, there's so much pressure on the oil and gas industry uh, while the, the industry there is one of the cleanest in the world. So why is Saudi, Nigerian, Venezuelan oil okay um, to consume uh, or to produce globally rather than really maximizing Canadian exports? I'd love to hear how, how you all address that question. Jackie, you want to take the first run? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a question I have definitely answered before and thought a lot about. You know, first of all, uh, one of the issues is greenhouse gas emissions from our oil sands. That is actually the issue. So uh, there is some dated information and, and unfortunately that is really the information that's out there that shows Canada is the highest, some of the highest carbon crude oil in the world from the oil sands. But it doesn't reflect everything. That's kind of like cherry picking some of the worst operations and there are some that are in that range. But a lot of the new operations are actually closer to the average uh, in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so, that historical perception that the oil sands is kind of the dirtiest oil 
is out there and it's it's so hard to work against uh, even in the last two weeks two very high profile examples right we had joe biden saying i don't support kxl the tar sands is very 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 polluting you know that's just the worst stuff in the world and then you had that norway uh, sovereign wealth fund divest you know decide to put out a press release uh singling out for oil sands companies that they wanted to divest from when in reality they're divesting from all their upstream oil and gas companies so i'm not sure why they decided to make uh, oil sands so prominent other than uh, they wanted to uh, show people, you know, oh, look, we're even getting rid of the worst of the worst, right? And uh, and uh, make a statement by doing that. So uh, it is difficult because uh, the companies that got divested, like Synovus, uh, you know, who wouldn't want that company in their portfolio? They have reduced their emissions by 30% in the last uh, several years. They have a 30% intensity reduction goal for 2030. They have an aspirational net zero goal. Uh, they're excellent on the, the S and the G. And when I went actually to the Norway Wealth Fund and looked at the upstream companies of oil and gas that they're still invested in, many of them uh, do not have any of those things. They don't have uh, goals in terms of GHG reduction. They definitely are not as good as the S and the G. Uh, so it's super frustrating. I honestly think, you know, we, we talk about all the time, oh, we just got to get the data out there. And, and there's work going right now to get Stanford. We need a third party credible group to come out and say, you know, what are the real numbers? So there's work coming this year where we'll have a, you know, scientific paper in the right publication that shows that not oil, all oil sands is, is what is being described in, in the existing Stanford work, which is mostly what's being referenced. But I think we need to do even more. And that's why I'm super excited about the hydrogen economy for Alberta, about geothermal. I think we have to leapfrog Norway. You know, if the Norwegians think we're not good enough, let's actually leapfrog them uh, and be the world's leader and get to this net zero target a lot faster than anyone else does. I think that's the only way. I love the way you're you're taking this is when there's uh, th there's a perception out there which we face across the oil and gas industry and Canada foreshadows a lot of opposition trends for us in the US before they get here. I love what you're articulating, which we are also seeing hopefully foreshadowed in Canada to be replicated in the US, which is a kind of irresistible leadership of shared ambition that then transcends some of these old fights about my my data, your data, this is what I think, this is what that, and gets everyone excited about a shared energy future. So Kevin, tell us, tell us your perspective on this. Yeah, I think Jackie covered it well, but you know, the, I, I look at it from a sales perspective, you know, and um, as soon as you're explaining, you're losing. Um, and so as soon as you're saying, you know, my data is better than your data or the data is outdated and um, uh, you're, you're, you're losing your sales pitch. Um, and the sales pitch that wins is that actually we can't solve climate change without oil and gas. Um, and if we shut down oil and gas, then uh, we can do all these stuff. To say, okay, well, we're, we're less awful than um, Nigeria. I don't know if that's the sales pitch that wins. Uh, the sales pitch that wins is that, uh, you know, there, there is a future and, and we can't do this without oil and gas. And the only way we can, we're going to ever realistically get this done is with oil and gas at the table. Um, that's to me a, a more winning sales argument, um, and I've been happy with the the, the pitch is, is landing right now. <laughs> that's great. I love that. Um, I I usually approach this from the perspective of articulating risk, um, but I think that it's more more compelling this idea of of us selling to a, a stakeholder to a public. So. Uh, Kevin, you, you kicked us off with this idea of rather than be disrupted, let's disrupt. And you founded the Avatar program to empower your employees 
uh, to be thinking about the future. Can you talk a little bit about that program and, um, and what are you thinking about now? The world has turned upside down. Uh, even maybe disruption of a year ago is now disrupted. What's, what does this program and other programs like it look, for you, look like for you in the future? Yeah, um, yeah, actually, I can give everyone a, a little bit of a sneak peek announcement. There's going to be a major announcement coming at, at four o'clock today on the Avatar program. But, um, you know, generally speaking, um, the Avatar program was, was really founded around the fact that, you know, with the rigs that we were drilling with were becoming increasingly automated, uh, software was being rolled out, and the skill sets and the training for the frontline workers uh, were really rooted in the in a, in, a, in, a, in a drilling industry kind of of the past that didn't really foster you know innovation. You know we were implementing drilling rig automation programs where basically you can press a button and it drills. Um, and I was looking at the training systems and, and they weren't really kind of available. Um, and so recognizing that the skill sets required uh, were much different than what was going to be required uh, going in the future. So we worked with the University of Calgary and designed a two-year training program that uh, really fostered the skill sets required. Um, and uh, management of change, uh, adaptability, resilience, tech competencies, uh, leadership and uncertainty. Um, and we delivered it sort of through in-face modules at the university and then when the guys were back at their rig sites and remote work locations, we're connected online through a variety of, of, of initiatives. Um, through the program, we were really proud to announce a number of technology partners uh, in it. Uh, uh, five major Canadian EMPs, uh, Shell, uh, Birchcliff, uh, Synovus, uh, Termaline, and Arc. Um, it really kind of came to the table and we were, we were thrilled to have Virgin Galactic um, join as a technology partner um, halfway through the program. Um, really kind of Virgin Galactic's kind of understanding was, you know, there's no way to power a race to the stars um, without uh, hydrocarbons. And how do we create an aspirational goal for, for what hydrocarbons do? Um, so we had both the founders of uh, Virgin Galactic come and participated in some sessions. Um, and, you know, working on really some of the, you know, similarities between aerospace and energy. Um, you know, the aerospace industry is highly capital intensive, highly safety conscious. Um, you look at the Soyuz rocket of 1967 and you look at the Soyuz rocket of, of 2019, um, it's the exact same thing. They've added a, a red stripe. Um, you look at Virgin Galactic comes along, invents a, a new mechanism and a new engineering solution to actually access space and, and radically transforms the cost curve of space exploration uh, and now starts a new space race with, with SpaceX, uh, which today is, is going to be doing the first uh, manned launch um, uh, of American um, uh, astronauts uh, from American soil in, in 10 years, and Blue Origins, which is another uh, emerging company in the space. Um, so we were thrilled uh, to do that. Now, um, uh, so recognizing, first of all, that, you know, the, the concept of micro-credentialing, of throwing people into the, into the fire, uh, has been uh, an important one. Uh, many of the business initiatives that Beaver Drilling is working on right now were, were directly born in the Avatar program and, and really is, is our path forward um, as, a, as a drilling company out of, out of the next 12 to 18 months of drilling activity. Um, so uh, we're pleased uh, today that we're broadening uh, the Avatar program and at four o'clock today you'll be able to register. Uh, we'll be open to all young professionals in the in online sessions um, uh, tackling uh, hosted by the University of Calgary and some of the most senior energy leaders uh, in the world. 
Um, and then the groups will be broken into action learning projects um, where they will work through a particular challenge and present to a business panel uh, their ideas at the end of the year. So we're pleased actually to secure Virgin Galactic. So George Whiteside, the chief executive officer of Virgin Galactic will be hosting a technology session uh, with the chief technology officer of TransCanada uh, or TC Energy uh, and the chief information officer of Enbridge. Uh, Peter Cherzakian, Jackie's boss, will be doing a session on energy economics. Um, and uh, we're excited. We've got Michael Crothers, the, the uh, Canadian president of Shell, uh, on, the, on the final judging panel. Uh, and so basically, we're, we're rolling it out for $50 uh, across the industry. Everyone's donating their time. Um, basically, to re-engage and reconnect the workers and the young workers in this industry to not just be thinking about what the new energy future can look like, but actually empowering them to go and build it. Um, and uh, there's where people, a lot of people that have been displaced by the energy industry, let's, let's reconnect them. So we're excited, it starts June 19th, but I think the big threads of this are, are really, we don't have time to send everyone back to a four year engineering degree. Uh, we have to be looking at innovative training and engagement opportunities um, to uh, really be connecting the workforce and making people passionate about our industry again. Um, you know, there's, there's some really exciting stuff and uh, let's get people excited about what our, our future can be. And uh, it's been really exciting to see um, just the industry stand up and, and, and How exciting, uh, Kevin, that on our discussion about creating and defining the energy future that you made this announcement that's a surprise even to me. So thank you for that. Um, we'll share this information with our um, both true mailing list and on LinkedIn. So um, if, you, if you all are as excited about it as I am, we'll get moving on that. And if there's young professionals out there that are out of work and having trouble making the $50 fee, uh, let us know as well because I'm sure we can work with um, with our our clients to help find some sponsorships because that sounds like a really important effort ahead. Um, Jackie, tell us what you're thinking about this. Is, I've always said that oil and gas is the rocket science of the subsurface. I hadn't really realized that it was going to be the rocket science with full stop. Um, but tell me your reaction to Kevin's announcement and what's coming up. Oh, I really exciting. In fact, uh, I didn't know anything about it either, Kevin, so Peter's kept it quite secret, but I think it's great. I, I think there's a real problem. <laughs> we got so many people unemployed right now in Alberta and uh, also being isolated. Uh, so I think, I'm assuming this is going to be virtual and, and uh, people can, can dial in, but I think it's a great way to get people intellectually thinking about the industry, what they can do. We're very entrepreneurial in, in North America. In fact, Americans generally even more entrepreneurial than we are. Uh, but I, you know, when people don't have work, that actually can be an opportunity if they can kind of get out of that funk, think about what they can do. And as many challenges as we have, we also have a lot of opportunities and a lot of people that are just so interested in, you know, what can we do to reduce emissions? What can we do to be part of the future? I, I even look at like our podcasts that we put out, Arc Energy Ideas, we put out podcasts on the oil and gas industry, probably more than, well, more than half the time. But lately we've been focusing on new technologies as well. Uh, technologies that could uh, provide net zero or really low emissions and the amount of interest we get the people that follow those the amount of social media interest we get is an order of magnitude higher 
and a lot of our listeners are Western Canadian uh, industry. So people are really get excited about this. And uh, I think this is great, just great news, Kevin. Can't wait to promote it myself while, as the news comes out today on uh, social media. Great, yeah, 4, 4 p.m. today is when we're, we're sort of targeting. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. But I think one of the big pieces is too, is just actually, um, so we've gotten a number of, of sort of sponsors to be coaching the kind of teams along. And, and it's been really, um, great to, to, to see industry really step up and, and this kind of micro retraining and also reconnecting some of the displaced uh, energy workers across the industry um, with, you know, initiatives inside the industry and, and some of the most exciting technology in energy and in aerospace are going to kind of be showcased in, inside of it. So we're, yeah, it's exciting. Let's, we've, there is going to be a future to this and there's going to be another side to this crisis. And um, if we work together and, um, and empower each other, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And I think it can be better than it was before. You know, I, I often make the, the, the comment to, to my team is that, you know, um, as, as difficult as COVID has been, you know, the, the oil and gas industry was, was certainly struggling before COVID. And our goal shouldn't be to go back to February of 2019. <laughs> our goal should be going to a much better future. That's a great point. We cannot uh, invent the future if we're fighting to return to the past. Um, we, we have a, good, a number of great questions from the audience and one I'll, I will aim to you, Jackie, because I know you've been interviewing companies that are pivoting to some of the disruptions and innovations, geothermal, CCS. Um, are you running into any um, uh, barriers or concerns from the industry that these disruptions just aren't economic. They're not flexible. They're not scalable. How how are companies uh, transcending some of the limitations uh, of these opportunities compared to just traditional oil and gas? Uh, for sure, that's the problem, right? The problem is that many of them aren't economic. And honestly, it's going to even get harder because uh, oil price could be low here for a while. Uh, maybe natural gas price will go up, but generally low oil and gas prices make it even harder for these types of technologies to take off. And so, you know, I think that's where government really is important. Unfortunately, we still do need government, I think, to facilitate either through policy or carbon pricing, uh, something that will help get these things going. And so, for instance, the hydrogen, we spent a lot of time looking at it. There's no way you can compete to use it for burning. Yes, you could, you could replace hydrogen for using natural gas, as Kevin talked about but it may be three, four times the price of just burning natural gas. And um, the economics of that don't work. Now in Canada, we actually have a low carbon fuel standard that might be coming. And that would actually say that you need to transition to about 10% of your fuel being zero emission. And that may stimulate uh, those things, you know, won't be economic relative to natural gas, but policy will mean that there's a fairly big market and motivation for the distributors to uh, start looking for alternatives. Uh, so policy is really important, obviously a higher carbon price. Uh, CCS, uh, we've spent a lot of time looking at that in Western Canada. We have the world's largest carbon trunk line. We have huge conventional fields that have been, um, you know, produced and, and are really good targets for injecting more CO2 and enhanced oil recovery. But it is very, very difficult uh, to make it work without a higher carbon price. And I know in the US, you guys have put in some policies now to help stimulate more carbon capture storage as well. So you need those government policies so that we can get these technologies up and understood due to a scale that we can maybe bring down those unit costs, bring down those economics. 
Uh, so unfortunately, we're still in that, that period where we need the government policy. And I think, you know, the, this next year or two, I believe, you know, if we can get some stimulus spending to help get some of these things going, it could make a big difference in terms of their economics three, four years out. If you look at the renewables during the financial crisis, hundreds of billions of dollars were spent not only in the U.S., but in Europe and other places during the financial crisis to stimulate renewables. Ten years later, renewables became competitive with natural gas for power generation and are actually viable on their own today. But I don't think if we didn't have that stimulus spending a decade ago, we'd be in the position we are. And it's the same thing for these technologies. And so the silver lining to the downturn, if there is stimulus spending, I know there's a lot of discussion in the U.S. right now about that, is that we may get these projects more economic a decade from now. But let me pivot for our, our last uh, audience question to talk about the workforce a little bit. Um, Adam and team, we've been interested and concerned about the millennial workforce working in oil and gas who've been under a different kind of public pressure from their peers who are generally opposed to the oil and gas industry. Now they're, in, at least in the U.S., um, a third of all people that laid off are laid off are millennials. Um, so with that, plus the great shift change that uh, we've been predicting for a, dec a decade that has not yet happened, perhaps uh, it will be um, a result of this downturn, there's going to be a real challenge in retaining and attracting and uh, really nurturing the potential of our, of our workforce across generations. I'm interested, I'll, I'll give thinking about this with the Avatar program, um, but are you optimistic about our ability as an industry to attract and retain talent? Um, and then Jackie, I'll get, I'll get your two cents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's certainly, I think there's, there's a twofold challenge on this one. There's, there's one that, you know, the last four to five years of, of the oil and gas industry has been uh, really, has really struggled to, you know, do some of the recruitment drives and, and you know has really struggled, I think, to articulate what a what a bright future looks like for the industry, um, and and you know I think some of the the, the narrative between you know some of the the loudest voices of the green left uh, are potentially not uh, exciting or perhaps not exci exciting the millennials. But you know I'm I think there's ways to sell this industry um, and connect it with different aspirations and different value sets. Um, you know it's. Um, you know, selling the energy industry as a means of, you know, advancing, um, you know, global standards of living. There's a direct correlation between some quality of life and how much energy they consume, looking at energy poverty issues around the world. Um, and then as well as connecting to some, you know, if the, the biggest aspiration of our species is to become a multi-planetary species, um, as Elon Musk is so obsessed about, um, you know, the realistic way we're going to be doing that is, is through energy. And, and I think that an opportunity to, to connect oil and gas to a millennial value set through this type of thinking is, is potentially going to help, you know, reattract people into our industry. Um, and then I would say sort of, you know, secondarily is that, you know, there is a different, you know, working value set. Traditionally, you know, oil and gas and, and energy services have been very hierarchical um, organizations. Um, and there's good reason for that. You know, we run highly capital intensive, highly safety intensive processes uh, on a drilling rig. Uh, when we need to shut a well in, we've got 60 seconds to do it. We don't have time to collaborate. Um, and so how do you ring fence out of, of safety critical operations, forums for collaboration, forums for engagement, 
um, that really speaks to kind of the millennial value set um, that makes it, I think, a more attractive space to, 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 to come into. And I think those two aspects together, I think, you know, makes it a, a bright industry to come work in. Jackie? Yeah, I, I would just add, I, I think that the, uh, the messaging of the Canadian industry, and I know there's, there's real leaders in the U.S. too, uh, if you look at Occidental, in terms of really aggressive goals, in terms of reducing their emissions and being part of the solution, I think it's the only way uh, to attract millennials into this industry. Um, and unfortunately, you're right, uh, when it comes time for layoffs, it's, it's often the youngest people that get laid off, right? Be, you know, which is, which is unfortunate because they generally cost very little relative to some of the senior people that, that uh, but, but that's just how it goes. Um, I do think though, overall, this industry is gonna become leaner, uh, less people overall per barrel of oil. I think it has to be. Uh, you know, we, we made major reductions in our OPEX costs and our costs for bringing on new oil in uh, the 15, 16 period. I don't think we're probably gonna be able to make as big of changes this time around, but I don't know, you know, the innovation, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of innovation and people definitely have a lot of motivation right now to reduce costs from their business. And so I think, you know, sometimes we've talked about that shift change for a long time. I actually think we're just going to see an industry that has less and less people in it, whether due to digital technologies or other technologies. Uh, and we do need those younger people. So I hope that companies are thinking about that as they're thinking of downsizing, um, that they kind of keep a diversity in their workforce. Great, and we will be in two weeks for this webinar series, we will be interviewing um, two millennials on the Adamantine team uh, for research that we've been doing about the oil and gas millennial workforce. So stay tuned for a lot more information on the topic I think is mission critical. So we're gonna move to our, our rapid fire um, questions to close out here, where we learn a little bit more about the two of you as, as people. Um, so the first one, and I'll, I'll give Jackie the first go, is um, have you had, have you discovered any quirky management solutions for yourself during isolation and social distancing that others, others might benefit from hearing? I'm not really sure if they're management solutions, but I will tell you an innovation I had early on was to turn my camera off on these Zoom calls and stand up and do some exercise uh, because I find you just don't move around at all. And so for the first two weeks, I was like, oh my God, my back's killing me. Like when you go to the office, at least you walk to the office or you walk to the coffee machine here, you're just in a room all day. So there's my little tip. All you people with your camera off can jump up and do some jumping jacks or something right now. <laughs> Perfect. I admit to more than one yoga uh, session during uh, somebody else's webinar. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? Yeah, I think movement is the big one. So right when the pandemic struck and the gyms were closing, I uh, ran to the Canadian uh, tire uh, close to me and, uh, and bought whatever little gym equipment was available and pulled my cars out of my garage and uh, turned that into a gym. Um, I think I've gone through one or two tanks of fuel in the last nine weeks, uh, which probably is a demand shock problem. But yeah, physical activity is just absolutely critical. The last couple of weeks I've been getting into scheduling five minute breaks between my meetings because normally when I'm downtown, I, I, I walk to a meeting and I clear my head and I just schedule five minutes and do a little bit of walk. Now I can go outside and, uh, and clear my head because it's, uh, you got to stay from getting zoomed, zoomed out, I guess, is the term. <laughs> That's right. And somehow we're working more than ever with no commute. I don't understand how it happened. Um, Kevin, do you have a go-to book right now? 
Yeah, I'm reading uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century uh, by Noah Yuval Harari, uh, who's probably one of my favorite authors. He's a really captivating author. Um, you know, but what he tries to frame is, is sort of through the history of, of, of civilization, as well as some of the emerging technologies that are going to be impacting uh, humanity uh, from biomedical monitoring uh, to artificial intelligence um, and, and how um, humanity engages and makes smart decisions, I guess, uh, with the rapidly accelerating technology. Well, that sounds like a great one. We'll mention that in our show notes. What about you, Jackie? What are you reading right now? <laughs> you know, it's funny that I would don't have time for reading even now. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> just to keep up with my weekly edition of The Economist, if I actually uh, get through that in, in the week it's actually published, I'm pretty excited. And of course, I'm still doing a lot of podcasts, uh, listening to a lot of podcasts. When we're not recording our own, I'm listening to ones around energy, like the uh, Energy Gang, Columbia Energy Exchange. Now, the... Uh, the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contracts. <laughs> Kevin's on the board. Uh, they just had a, a shocking uh, podcast that's making international news. So uh, you can get that one on Podbeam. So I, I think podcast is really how I'm getting most of my information, not, not reading anymore, except for your book, Tisha, which I loved reading. So, well, thank you, Jackie. Um, so uh, the, the last question I have for you too is what part of isolation and social distancing do you want to take forward? Have you found some things that you want to retain in your life? Jackie? Well, I just think my life is a little less hectic. And uh, I was actually thinking about your book, uh, Tisha. Uh, you talked about the long days of leaving the house at five in the morning and being gone for 12, 15 hours a day. And that's how my life was too. I actually, you know, had a lot of, um, similarities. Like I leave here early. I bring my things to go to the gym. I bring my lunch. There's a half an hour of overhead the night before preparing all these things. Then I got to look good. So I gotta like spend time making my hair look good and uh, bring all my clothes. And then I'm gone for 12 plus hours and come home very late. So I'm really enjoying that. Although I'm busy, it just like feels a lot less hectic. And I'm hoping that uh, I can maintain some of that for sure. Nice. Kevin, what about you? Uh, I like I didn't realize how much of an extrovert I was until the lockdown. <laughs> I'm like, can I go out and like talk to people about the weather? You know, I never thought I would miss that. And 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 uh, the one piece, and I, I'm dying to get back to traveling as well. But the one piece that I would say is, is really nice is I'm able to have meetings with different continents and different countries. I used to, you know, I'd fly to Houston or I'd fly to Toronto for an hour long meeting. And while I certainly, you know, love the martini in the hotel bar, um, you know, it was, it was, there's just a new dynamic that you can have. Doesn't matter where you are, you can have a, a really productive meeting in it with video conferencing that I never really thought would be as mm -hmm. effective. And we can get decision makers from different continents to always show up at a meeting as opposed to fly to this place, fly to that place. And I think that that's going to be one of the, the more exciting ways is it's faster to do uh, international business deals right now. Mm, that's great. And it's funny, you found out you were an extrovert and I found out I was an introvert. I was supposed to travel for nine straight weeks. Instead, I've been home for nine weeks and I've left my canyon twice, uh, notably for happy hours. So, uh, <laughs> It's funny the things that we learn about each other during this time. Well, I want to um, thank our, our audience for joining us. You have an abundance of choices of, uh, of media right now to consume. So thanks for being with us. Ann Carto and Michael Tanner have uh, made this webinar and the resulting podcast possible. Um, 
Uh, next uh, week we'll take off and then we'll return to talk about the millennial workforce and then the theme of defining the future of energy uh, will continue. Um, thank you so much, Jackie and Kevin, for joining us, uh, for inspiring us. It's been great to have you. Well, thanks for inviting us. And I'll thanks for having us, Tisha. Sure, and I'll, I'll leave everyone with um, how we started our discussion today, which is, would you rather be disrupted or uh, be the industry that is disrupting? So I hope that you go forth and you help um, us define and lead into the energy future. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Kevin Krausert and Jackie Forrest for taking the time to share their insights with all of us about how the oil and gas industry can uh, be the disruptor instead of just be disrupted at this moment as we move into the energy future. We wanna know what you think about what you've heard here. Please check out our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let us know. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you hear, please help us by reading it. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler. Wishing you and yours ha happiness, prosperity, and good health.